Amen. You may be seated. We're continuing today our sermon series in James's letter. We've come all the way now to chapter 5. I want to read the first 12 verses of chapter 5. It's printed there if you don't have your Bible with you on page 10 in your bulletin. Stern stuff here from Pastor James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned, you've murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. We pray for the moving of your spirit now, our great God, as we hear this. Change our hearts. In Jesus we ask. Amen. Should we tell people that life is better with Jesus? <laughs> I'm hearing a yes and a no from the interesting. Yeah, I hear you. I I hear this a lot, you know, people say this, a way of evangelizing, you know, come to Jesus. Life's better. We say this to our kids. Be faithful. Follow, you know, follow the Lord. God will bless you. Your life will be better. Should we say that? I mean, Jesus, we just read it in John 10. He said, I came that my, my sheep might have life more abundantly. So, you know, we've got to take that seriously. Life is more abundant with Jesus. Here's the problem. No sooner do I say abundant life or a better life, and I know every one of you in your head, you, your brain starts making pictures. You have pictures in your head of what a better life is. There's a shape to that in your mind. And the question is whether Jesus would sign off on those pictures in your head of what a better life is. You know, it's very easy for us to critique what is known as the prosperity gospel. And you guys know what the prosperity gospel is, these slick, you know, TV evangelists. And, you know, you need to send them money and they will pray for you. And, they, and, and what God wants for you as they pray for you is that you're going to be filthy, rich, and super successful and all on and on. And, you know, you'll basically realize over time a lot of it's just kind of a scheme to make sure that you're funding that that preacher's Learjet or whatever it is and you know we, we look at that stuff and we kind of mock it you know oh Jesus will make you fabulously wealthy and fabulously successful and we sort of mock that but you know for many of us if you think about what you think about when you think of the better life can we get real for a moment it looks an awful lot like upper middle class America that's what the better life looks like if we really talk about this, like a better life for you, what would it look like? Well, it would probably look like more steady, spendable money, 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 strong credit, lots of shiny stuff, being well-liked by the people who matter, hopefully a successful romantic interest, and above all, 
We want to be happy. Doesn't Jesus want you to be happy? Oh, he wants so much for you to be happy. Middle-class America-style happy. Well, Jesus absolutely has a shape in mind for our lives. He has something in mind for a better life for us. And John Webster, the theologian John Webster, says you can know what Jesus' shape of the better life for you is in that simple phrase that you can see in verse, what is it, 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. That's what Jesus thinks when he thinks about a better life for you. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. What's going to shape your life as a Jesus follower is very simply God's purpose. God has a plan. He's working out that plan regardless of who notices, regardless of who agrees or opposes it. He has a plan. And as a Jesus follower, you are now part of that plan. And so what's going to happen every day of your life from now on as you follow Jesus is that purpose of God, that plan of God, it's going to shape your circumstances, which God controls. And as you grow in following Jesus, it's going to shape your choices too. You're going to start to value and prioritize what God wants for your life. That's, that's what it means that the purpose of the Lord shapes you. And what's going to happen is sometimes as a result of that, as your life is now being shaped by God's purpose and you're like into that, like that's what you want, there are going to be moments when compared to people who do not follow Jesus, brother, sister, you're going to look like maybe you're a loser. Sometimes that's going to happen. Your life is not always following Jesus going to look like it is just overflowing with bourgeois happiness. Well, meanwhile, those who have no time for God whatsoever, and if you brought up God, it would just be like hostile, many of them are going to look like they're really wealthy and really prosperous and having a good old time. And in a sense, you've got to say, people who don't have any interest in God and no interest in Jesus really do have an edge when it comes to pursuing wealth and status and you know, power and gratification. Why do they have an edge? Well, because those are their only priorities. That's what they live for. That's what the Gentiles seek, to be wealthy and have status and you know, have gratification. And so if that's all you have on your agenda, you just go after those things, whereas we have this whole other thing where it's not wrong to have wealth and status and gratification, but you know, we have this whole thing of God's purpose. And so we're kind of, in a sense, torn. And I want to ask you guys, really, truly, is that unfair? Is it unfair that in following Jesus, you might not be happy North American middle-class style? Is that fair to you? Well, Pastor James, like the prophets and psalmists of the Old Testament, he just really jolts us awake to reality again with these first six verses, which are the harshest, they're the harshest words in his whole letter. And what we're going to notice is, we're going to talk about all 12 verses, but the first six, we're going to notice, these first six verses are not actually directly addressed to you or to me or to even to his readers. They're not directly addressed to Christians. But we really need to listen to these first six verses for a couple of reasons, and then we'll also hear him talk to us directly in verses 7 through 12. So I want to start with verses 1 through 6, and I just want to talk about the warning here to the proud. The warning to the proud. Come now, you rich, weep and howl like hell is descending on you. And this gives us a rare glimpse into the actual circumstances of James's scattered flock there in the, you know, like within like 20 years or so years after Jesus was resurrected and went back to be with the Father. I mean, this is a really tough time, and James doesn't say a lot about the details of what his readers are experiencing, but we get a glimpse here, and you might recall as he talks about these landowners, these rich landowners, and there's laborers in their fields who are, you know, being defrauded of their wages, and, and he's really like cursing these rich 
powerful people. It's helpful to remember that in the early days of the church, Christians and Jews were still socially intermingled. Most Christians were still Jews. Like, this was their lineage, these were your, their people, and so they, they, began, they began to follow the Jew Jesus, whom the, they'd come to realize he's the Messiah, but they still were very much mingled in with the Jews. And what, the reason this caused problems often was because Christians very often came from kind of lower strata of society. Many, not a lot of them were sort of big shots in the society of the time. And then persecution broke out because they followed this Jesus character, and, you know, the Jewish authorities hated him, and so they, they began to be scattered through persecution. And guess what happens when you're scattered? If you end up, like, being scattered to some far-flung town you've never been before, when you get there, what do you need? You've got to find work. And you're kind of economically vulnerable, and so you might end up, you know, t- working out in somebody's field. But that economic vulnerability, that you just didn't have, like, a settled life in a place, you weren't, like, a big shot who had lots of clout... That economic vulnerability was a real problem if Jews, who had a lot of social power, they had a lot of wealth, they had a lot of influence, if those Jewish powerful people turned on you, you were in a world of hurt. Back in chapter 2, James talks about the rich who dishonor the poor, oppress you, he says, drag you into court, and blaspheme that honorable name, Jesus, by which you were called. So if the powerful Jewish contingency in, in society were to turn on these Christians, they would be really, they had, they, had, they had no way to fight back, and they're being here defrauded of their wages. You know, you work all day out in the field, you, you, you're just very, very tough manual labor, and then you don't get anything for it, and your family's starving. You can imagine the panic that sets in, but that, that defrauding of wages here, it's important to notice, it isn't just an economic problem. You know, there have been lots of these sorts of exploitations in history, but this isn't just an economic you know, crime against these poor workers, but it is also, this is a reflection of this whole system of opposition to Jesus and opposition to Jesus' people by the powers of that first century age, especially the Jewish powers of the time and, of course, to some extent, the Romans as well. So that sort of gives us some history, and that history is important. Why? Because if we were sitting in a church and this were the, you know, A.D. 35, And this letter that James wrote is read here this afternoon, and some of you are unable to pay your bills and buy food because you're not being paid by your, you know, your boss, and there's these kind of huge social powers that are hunting Christians down and killing them, and it's just a dark, dark time. If I'd read this text to you in that time, it would have seemed like this is insane, (laughs) you know, it'd be like me, it'd be like, you know, Christians in Afghanistan right now Come now, you, you know, those who are persecuting Christians, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And it's, it's just, it's so easy for us to sit here now and look back and realize, yeah, that actually happened. Those powers, you know, it would have seemed insane at the time. But God isn't bluffing here. The, the riches and the power, the immense riches and power of Second Temple Judaism in that temple that Herod the Great built, and all of the, you know, power to, you know, even kind of wield the power of Rome against Christians, all of that wealth and power, it didn't look like it, but it was all rotted. It was all, a fire was being kindled, a day of slaughter, as James puts it here, prepared by God, the Lord of hosts. And of course, we, the reason why it's good to step back into this historical context and try to imagine what it was like to hear this when you were one of those suffering people is that now, 2,000 years later, we look back and we know this absolutely happened. That funeral pyre was kindled, and God 
in AD 70 burned the city of Jerusalem to the ground. All, Jesus had said it when he was on the earth. He said, all the blood of the righteous prophets, including Messiah and the martyrs of the early church, he said it's going to be visited on this generation of those who oppose their Messiah. And he did it. You know, that, that, that day of slaughter happened in history. We know this now. And so one thing that we should draw from this is just the simple fact that to any, any powers in any age that oppose Jesus and his church, this still speaks truly. God's warnings are not kidding. It may not look in the moment like God's enemies are, could ever be weakened, but God is not kidding, and we know that because we know the historical context of this. So, you know, it speaks to powers that oppose Christ. It speaks to powers that oppose the church. But what I want to think about for a minute is what does this text say to us? How should we as Christians respond to this just fiery denunciation of those who are oppressing Christians and opposing Christ and his people? How do we respond? I want to suggest two ways we can respond and actually get something really out of these six verses. Number one, and after a couple of you know, hard years where I think a lot of you are, are pretty worked up about a lot of things going on in the world that seem very powerful, one thing that I think we need to respond with biblically to this announcement of judgment against hostile powers is just thankfulness. Just thankfulness. One of the things that characterizes God's people throughout history, whether they're remembering the Lord's judgments. Now, the modern church doesn't like to talk a lot about judgment because it seems sort of harsh. But God judges. He judges the wicked. And when the church throughout history, as you look in the Bible, have remembered the Lord's judgments, they've remembered those judgments with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, for judging your enemies. And they've looked forward to judgments that have not happened yet with thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, that you are going to judge your enemies. And so there's kind of this irrepressible gladness and even a kind of excitement and celebration even in really dark times because yeah the heathen rage and the gentiles you know shake their fists at god but he who sits on the throne in heaven laughs and there's just this thankfulness thank you lord that you're going to take care of this and i just want to read you something i was reading a pastor this week and he's kind of riffing on ephesians 5 where paul's talking about something similar and he says um the wrath of god is coming on the children of disobedience don't waste time, redeem the time, because these days are evil, and here's how you redeem the time, by giving thanks to God the Father in Jesus' name for all things. And this is what this pastor says about the thankfulness of Christians thinking about the fact that the wrath of God is coming. Not something we often think about. He says the wrath of God is coming straight at the children of disobedience, precisely because of their personal choices. The children of light should be overflowing with thanksgiving because the wrath of God is coming. Now, don't partake with them. Walk as children of light, the kind of children who give thanks. Bear fruit in accordance with that truth, the fruit being goodness, righteousness, and truth. The time must not be wasted because these days are evil. This thanksgiving that we offer is not because we're deluded about the state of the culture around us, precisely the opposite. We know how bad it is, and we know that we are to understand what the will of God is concerning us, and what does God want from us in the evil day? I'll ask you guys, what does God want from us in the evil day? Like, when it's bad, the children of disobedience seem powerful. He does not want us to deaden the pain with anything like wine. He doesn't want us coping with cocaine, Central American herbs, prescription pick-me-ups, or the soporific of an endless chain of stupid movies. 
No, the days are evil, so what must we do? We must be filled with the Spirit and must sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs because our hearts are full of music. We must render thanks to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we must give thanks for all things in the evil day, all things. That's the Spirit that should characterize the church when the days are evil and the enemies of God seem very powerful and judgment is coming upon the children of disobedience. There should be thankfulness. And I think that's all very encouraging, and I would just love to see more of that in me. I'd love to see more of that in us as a congregation, just kind of a steady, cheerful, thankful, you know what, God judges. He's very competent to do that. He's never late in doing that. He is faithful in doing that. He's patient, thank God, in doing that, and we just are thankful, but there's something else. And I think this is probably one of the least popular things I've said this year. I think this text should prompt thankfulness as we think about the fact that judgment came on those who oppose these readers, judgment will come on all who oppose Christ and his church. Thankfulness, yes, but also I think we need to listen to this with sobriety. And this is why. Because the crosshairs in this text are clearly on the powers that oppose Jesus and oppose his church. But I would not be a faithful pastor if I did not point out the warning that's here, I think, for Jesus' people, for Christians, when in God's orchestrating of our lives, we are allowed to, as James puts it, live on the earth in luxury. Can I draw your attention to verse 5? Now, these are enemies of Jesus. These are enemies of God. You are certainly not. You're children of God. But I want you to just notice that language in verse 5. You've lived, this is how it got started. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Do you guys know what a luxury is? A luxury is anything that you do or acquire, not because you need it, but because it gratifies your appetites. It's anything you get or do, not because you need it, but because it gratifies your appetites. You need food. The fact that you can have 80 options for what kind of coffee to get at Starbucks is a luxury. The fact that there are 138 kinds of cereal in the grocery store, that is a luxury. The fact that your dressers, most of you, they are full of clothing, that is luxury. The fact that your house has more than two rooms in it, in fact, in most cases, has more than one floor in it, you don't need more than one room. You don't need it. You got roof over your head, you have what you need. You live in luxury houses. Cosmetics are a luxury. The fact that your car has air conditioning is a luxury. The fact that you can go to school and you can choose a degree that's like molded to you and you can choose a career eventually that's molded to you. This is luxury. The fact that you can walk around with a phone in your hand all the time is a luxury. Oh, I need my phone. Pish. You have never needed, nor will you ever need a smartphone. It is a luxury. And you know why Long Islanders are economically stressed? See, I hear people say all the time, oh, we're just so stressed trying to make ends meet. We're not trying to make ends meet. We're funding luxury lifestyles. The economic stress on this island is because people are constantly trying to pay for the luxuries. That's why we struggle. That's why it's stressful. There is no other explanation. If you actually only paid for what you need, do you know how much time and money you would have if you and your kids only ever spent time and money on stuff you need? Now, you can say that's a pretty grim way to live. I agree. 
Thank God for luxury. What's the problem with luxury? Look at verse 5 again. You've lived on the earth, and you do, brothers and sisters, you do. This fits you. This description fits you. You live on the earth in luxury, and what does he say next? And you have become what? There are very few people. I'm going to go so far as to say, I'm not sure there are any, except Jesus, who have the virtue to live steeped in luxuries and not have it change your heart. Can I tell you guys a really hard truth? And this is Ben Miller's problem as much as yours, so I'm not talking down at you one little bit here. The more your wants are gratified, the more selfish you become. The more your wants are satisfied and gratified, the more selfish you become. Unless the Holy Spirit's doing some kind of very, very big work in you because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I've watched this as a pastor, and I'm getting less and less backward about pointing it out. I've watched people. I've watched some of you. And the reality is your luxuries, brothers and sisters, have they made you self-indulgent? Well, I can tell you, for a lot of you, your luxuries are in the way of worship. You know why your life is not full of worshipfulness? Why you don't have time for family worship and you don't have time for a prayer and you don't have time to stop and give thanks three times a day like Daniel? And you just don't have time for worship? Some of you can't even... Some, of these, some people it, it, you know, over the years at Trinity, I've realized, can barely make it a priority to show up for worship on Sunday, which is the Lord's Day. Why? Because of luxury. Luxury absolutely is in the way of contentment for most of us. You can, I see it in your kids. That child pitching a fit because she can't have exactly the flavor of ice cream she wants is a child who's become self-indulgent through too much luxury. And I listen to the grumbling of Long Island Christians about how their life is hard, and a lot of times what I want to say is your budget, or you're exceeding your budget, is why you're exhausted, is why you're stressed. You absolutely will not downscale because you don't know what contentment is. That's just real. Call it what you will. For many of us, our luxuries are in the way of patience. We're impatient with life because we're used to luxury. We're used to it. It's in the way for many of us of humility. It makes you proud. It makes you, not in a, you don't think of yourself as proud, but you start to kind of feel like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm making it compared to other people. And here's what I really see as a pastor. Luxuries are totally in the way of what Paul calls being zealous for good works. Do you know why a lot of us just don't have time for good works? And there are so many good works that need to be done and you can't ever find people with time and energy to do it. You know why? Because our lives are saturated with luxury and we're so busy trying to maintain these luxury lifestyles and they are luxury lifestyles. We don't have time for good works. We're too stressed. I personally know Christians for whom maintaining and increasing luxuries has gradually built around them a self-indulgent fortress. And these Christians, they're Christians, they profess the name of Jesus, and they're in many ways very faithful, but what I see in their life is they love when it's comfortable because they're used to having what they want. They love when it's comfortable because they're used to putting themselves first. I'll put it this bluntly. Luxury has made them unavailable. And unavailability is the death of Christian mission. Can I say that again? Your luxuries make you unavailable. And unavailability is the death of what we are on this planet for, which is Christian mission. That's just real. 
Jesus talked about this for a reason. In those parts of the New Testament that we kind of scratch out and think it doesn't apply, maybe it applies to like Franciscan monastics. Jesus said these words, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's no sin in luxury. There is massive sin in self-indulgence. And if your luxuries have your heart, brother, sister, that's where your heart is. Not with Jesus' kingdom. I want to go on and on in this vein, but I should stop. The warning to the proud. Now, both suffering saints who are being crushed by the powers and those who are tempted, and we all are, especially in our context, those tempted to self-indulgence, both of us, and I'll be much quicker here, need the second part of this, the simple words in verse 7, be patient. Now, if you're suffering, you need to hear, be patient. If you're tempted to self-indulgence, we need to hear these words, be patient. So I want to move now from the warning to the proud to the waiting of the saints. Be patient, therefore, brothers. And now he's talking to us directly. So there's something to be learned from the, the proud, wicked who oppose God, their luxury, luxury lifestyle, the self-indulgence that comes with that. But now he speaks directly to us, and particularly to suffering Christians, and he says, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And this is a basic description of life on the Jesus way. Life on the Jesus way is, if you don't like this, it's going to be hard to walk on the Jesus way. It is fundamentally a walk of patience. It is fundamentally oriented to promises of God that aren't here just yet. Like, that's just being a Christian. That's not like weird Christianity, like unusual circumstances. That's just what it means to be a Christian. You are constantly, I am constantly in a, in a place where I need to be patient, awaiting God's promise that he will work he will judge, he will save, he will reward. He is coming, as James says. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, was James making that up in the first century? Because it feels like, you know, most of us think of the coming of the Lord. We think about Jesus' second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we think about, you know, that isn't, hasn't even happened yet. So, James, how could you tell him it's at hand? Because not every coming is referring to the end of history return of Jesus Christ. This coming of the Lord was not at the end of history, be patient until the coming of the Lord, James says. What coming? Well, Jesus promised he was going to come in history to judge his enemies. He told the high priest, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting on his throne of power that was quoting the prophet Daniel there. He said, all the blood of the martyrs and the prophets is going to be visited upon this generation, and these things will happen within this generation, he said, and they did. Jesus came, you know, from his throne in heaven, and he destroyed that city that had made war on him and made war on his saints. That coming of the Lord in judgment in history happened, so James was speaking truly when he said, you know, it's at hand. But for all of us as Jesus' people, all of us, all through history, whether we look for it to happen in history, and boy, I pray for that. I know you do too. You know, sometimes you pray, God, there are powers that oppose you, cause them to fall in history. Let's not wait till the end. But whether it's in history or at the end, the promise of God to us is that Christ is coming. <laughs> to work, to judge, to save, to reward. And meanwhile, beloved, he has ordained the road you're going to walk until he comes. The path has been laid out for you until that coming of the Lord, whenever it is. You need to be patient with that path. Be patient with the path. John Webster says this. I love this. He says, patience is the virtue 
in which we allow our lives to run their allotted course in their allotted time. It's the particular virtue which acknowledges that limits of time and limits of situation are not some dreadful enemy which we have to master, but those are the shape that our lives are given as they follow the path laid out for us by God, unquote. And you notice the illustrations, the three illustrations that James uses, and they kind of go from better to worse. He begins with the farmer, and the farmer just gives us a super basic fact, a, a very basic truth that, 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 that shapes our patience, and that is that God's purposes take time. If you're a farmer, I mean, I grew up in upstate New York. I talk about this all the time. In farming country, you know, you just simply, there are no instant harvests. <laughs> They've never been invented. You have to plant and you get the early rains, and you need the latter rains. God's purposes take time. You've got to wait for the latter rains. Pray for them and wait for the latter rains. And as you're waiting upon God as a farmer, doing, you know, you're in God's field, God's purposes take time, don't be dismayed by the fact that it's taking a lot of time. And don't, dear saints, be distracted in the meantime, because it's easy if you're a farmer and you plant your field, you're like, ah, time to chill. And you run off and there's all these pleasures and cares that will keep you from doing the work you need to do to plant and weed and water and eventually to harvest. So don't be dismayed or distracted. God's purposes take time. And then he ramps it up a a notch. In verse 10, he says, now let's talk about the prophets. Not farmers now, but prophets. And see, the problem with the prophets, as you know, is they didn't just work. They suffered. They were opposed. They were attacked. They were hated. And there's a second thing from the prophets, not so much that God's purposes take time, though that's true, but that you will never lose in serving God. You will never lose. Remember the prophets, we consider them blessed. We now look back on their story and know they didn't lose in serving God. Blessed were those who were steadfast. Better to be a martyr who speaks in God's name. They spoke in the name of the Lord. Better to be one who is killed for speaking the truth in the name of God Almighty and of Jesus Christ, his son, than to be a rich, wealthy blasphemer of the name who's got all the cards in his deck, and yet he hates the Savior of the world, the Son of God. Better to be one of those prophets, no matter how much they suffered, you'll never lose in serving God. And then he takes it up a whole other notch, and he says, by the way, just to sort of like make sure we don't miss it, you remember Job? And this is just just hard, because this isn't a farmer waiting. This isn't a prophet doing good things and being and suffering for it. Job isn't doing anything. He's just living. And God just starts dropping miseries on him. I mean, he's just sort of sitting there, you know, being a faithful dude, you know, loving his family, running his businesses, and God just lets Satan unleash on him, literally losing everything except his health, except his life, and he even lost his health. And James goes there and he says, you remember the steadfastness of Job? And the message here is, Yes, God's purposes take time. You'll never lose in serving him. But the thing you really need to remember from the story of Job, you've seen that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God's heart for you always is kind. There is no pit so deep in which God will plunge you, but his compassion and his mercy are not greater still. There is that scene at the end of Job where God shows up in his second discourse to Job and he thunders from heaven and he says, Job, I want to ask you a question. Do you have the power to put a hook in the jaws of Leviathan and bring down that ancient prince of the sons of pride? I have that power. I can save you from your adversary. 
I'm not your adversary. I'm the one who saved you from your adversary, and I will save you from your adversary, and you can never do it yourself. My heart toward you, no matter how it looks, Job, in the heavens, I've declared you righteous, and I will vindicate you. My heart for you is kind. And so the psalmist can say, like Job said, though he slay me, I will trust him. The psalmist can say, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. God's heart for you is kind. It is kind. Those are the things we need to hear to strengthen patience. Now, you'll notice there are also a couple of temptations. We wouldn't want to stop without noting the temptations because patience is tough. And there are a couple of things that James warns us against as we are walking this path, waiting for the comings or coming of the Lord, and it's long and sometimes hard and sometimes there's suffering and sometimes there's inexplicable suffering. And there are a couple of things. Number one, he tells us in verse 6, sorry, verse 9, He says, don't grumble against each other. Have you ever noticed, beloved, how easy it is when you're really stressed to allow that stress to turn you on those closest to you? Stress can turn us on each other. When suffering goes long, it is just easy to take out the pain of suffering on those who are close to you, those who are your brothers and sisters, those who are in the church. And James says, listen, you know God's going to judge your enemies. Be careful you don't bring yourself under his judgment by just grumbling against each other. You know when things really get testy is when you've got a group of Christians and they're all going through kind of a roughly similar season of suffering and, and testing and they don't agree on how to navigate it. Like some of y'all think that not wearing a mask is non-Christian. And some of y'all think wearing a mask is like receiving the mark of the beast. Some of you think you better get vaccinated or you're in borderline in sin. Some of you think getting vaccines is like surrender to the powers of Antichrist. Don't grumble against each other, brethren. Don't grumble against each other. You be careful. You be gentle. You be respectful. You honor each other. Don't bring yourself under judgment in the way you treat each other when times are hard and you don't agree on how to navigate it. And there's something else at the very end. Weird little verse. Don't swear by heaven or earth or by any other oath. You let your yes be yes and your no be no. What on earth are you saying, James? Well, in Jewish culture of that time, oath-taking was a way of making others rely on your promise, take your promise more seriously than you yourself take it. Well, I didn't swear by heaven. (laughs) I just swore by earth. I didn't swear by the altar, I swore by the gold on the altar or whatever. And it was a way of kind of like making promises or making affirmations, but you're trying to get other people to rely upon them. Well, you yourself know it's not quite so, you're not really there. And you can imagine maybe these suffering, economically exploited people who have creditors banging on their doors might have been tempted to take some oaths that I'll pay, but I didn't take the right kind of oath, so oops, I can't come through when the creditor comes knocking, who knows? But I think fundamentally what James is saying here is when you're in these hard times, don't just, don't just be careful not to allow stress to turn you on each other. Never, never in stressed times should you sacrifice your integrity for an advantage. And that is a temptation. It is a temptation. When you are really hurting, when you have really been exploited, when you've really been trampled, 
It is tempting to sacrifice the integrity of your walk before the Lord, your moral obligations to him and to your neighbor because you want to somehow find a way to cut a corner and get some advantage. There is no place in the Jesus way for defrauding other people even if they've defrauded you. There is no place for exploiting people. There is no place for using our Christian name, the name of Jesus and our Christian identity as a way to manipulate people because you know they might trust you more because you're a Christian, but you kind of take advantage of that. There's no place for this. It is not an open door to us to act unlawfully in order to avenge unlawful behavior against us. That is sin. Don't do it. Don't fight evil with evil. Maintain your integrity. Your yes is yes. Your no is no. Walk in your integrity even if it costs you a lot. I'll close with this from John Webster. Because that's a tall order to walk in that kind of patience. Even with all the encouragements of who God is for us, it's still hard. And I appreciate Webster's emphasis here as we end. He said it's not just that patience doesn't come easily to us. It's more that it doesn't come at all. For it is very far outside the range of our abilities. And that's why patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If there's patience in human life and in human fellowship, it's not because of any capacity that we sinners have. It's because God himself in the power of the Spirit is making us alive. The Spirit is God himself making us into what we are not. God himself bestowing upon us the capacity to do what sin prevents us from doing. And that's why, as the prophet Micah puts it, we have to look to the Lord. That looking to God, confident God will hear us. That is at the heart of the Christian life. And so it is the root of patience. I know it's, it's tough times, dear saints. Be patient, brothers, sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Amen. God, give us integrity. Give us patience. Give us love. Give us thankful joy as we wait upon you in our time. In Jesus we ask. Amen.